This is an ABC podcast. I got Wordle in four today, Norman. How'd you fare? I, I couldn't get in. Josh, what was your Wordle count today? I actually haven't done it today, but I've been doing it in four most days. I think the best people get it in four. That's what I'm hearing, Josh. Yeah, I, I think so. Well, of course, this is CoronaCast. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Monday, the 7th of February, 2022. And until pretty recently, if you got COVID and you were going to get badly sick from it, we didn't have much in the way of specialist treatments for it. And the ones that we did have, you could really only get in a hospital. But now the Therapeutic Goods Administration has provisionally approved two antiviral pills. One is molnupiravir, which we've talked about before. It has the commercial name Legevrio. And then the other one that we've heard a lot about is Paxlovid. It's a combination of two antivirals, Nermotrelvir and Ritonavir. That's a lot of things ending in Vir, but we have a guest today here with us to help us make sense of it. Professor Josh Davis. Yes, the Josh you heard at the top. Infectious Diseases Physician at the University of Newcastle. He's the past president of the Australasian Society for Infectious Diseases. And importantly, he's a member of the National COVID-19 Clinical Evidence Task Force, which has just released recommendations on how these drugs should be used in Australia. Welcome, Josh. Hi, Norman. Hi, Tegan. Thanks for having me. So one of the big reasons we wanted to get you on today was to talk about antivirals, because this is something you've been looking closely at. It's something that a lot of our listeners have asked us a lot of questions about, and they are starting to be approved in Australia. So what can you tell us about the two biggest antivirals that people might have heard the names of now, Paxlovid and Legevrio? Both of those have been recently conditionally approved by the TGA, and also have we've recently come out with a recommendation supporting their use from the National COVID Evidence Task Force. They're both oral medications, tablets in other words, so a, a really big step forward from what we've had previously as antivirals, which are intravenous, um, and so that they can be used in the community. The first one that you mentioned, Paxlovid, it's, um, that's the brand name of Nermatrelvir slash Ritonavir, so much easier just to call it Paxlovid. That's a, a tablet that's taken uh, for five days um, and it significantly decreases the risk of hospital admission or death in people with early COVID if they're at risk, you know, if they're at increased risk of those things. And what about molnupiravir, the other one? So molnupiravir is also interesting. Um, it acts on the viral RNA polymerase, which is another enzyme the virus uses to copy itself. But rather than stopping that enzyme working, it, it in- introduces errors so as the virus copies itself, more and more errors occur until they, you get to the, a, a um, phenomenon called error catastrophe, which I love that word. <laughs> um, and <laughs> error catastrophe means the vi- there's so many errors, the virus just um, dies and can't copy itself. Uh, Molnupiravir also in clinical trials has been shown to, to be of some benefit, but probably less so than, than Paxlovid um, in this context. So how do you expect doctors to use these drugs with patients? So they're not for everybody with COVID. Most people with COVID won't need any drugs like this. They'll get better on their own. And that's primarily I'm thinking about younger people with no comorbidities. Where these drugs come in is for people that have risk factors for progression to severe disease. And by far the most important risk factor is older age and and being unvaccinated. And then the other important ones are being immunosuppressed. So if your immune system is suppressed because of medications, for example, and you might not have responded to the vaccine. And then finally, other comorbidities such as diabetes, overweight, and so on. So taking all of those things into account together, 
the guidelines and, and the prescribers will, will decide if the patient will likely benefit from one of these medications. And if so, um, they, they need to be prescribed within the first five days from symptom onset because then they're really not effective after that. Access is really important. So this has been provisionally approved by the TGA, so that allows it to be marketed and used. Hasn't been approved by the PBAC, which is the committee that gives subsidies so you can write out a script for it. How are GPs and patients going to get their hands on these drugs if, in fact, you can't write out a script for them yet? Yeah, it's going to be messy. Um, and uh, people are working furiously behind the scenes to um, work out some models of care and distributions. And that's happening at each the level of each state health department. At the moment, or initially, they're going to be supplied through the national medicine stockpile. It'll be distributed from that national stockpile to each state. And then each state is tasked to work out a way of distributing them. In New South Wales, the likely initial um, strategy will be that certain pharmacies will participate in a scheme and hold the medications, and then GPs will be able to prescribe them, but they'll have to fill out some special forms basically to show that the patient meets the criteria, and then they can be supplied through those pharmacies. So it's going to be a little bit clunky, but eventually when they come on the PBS, it will just be like writing a normal prescription. So that that raises practical issues. So the two, three questions, which I'll wrap into one. One is, if we're short of PCR testing, how's the doctor, how's your GP going to know that you've actually got it so you get the drug in time? Secondly, the clinical trials were in unvaccinated people. Do we know how it performs in vaccinated people? And I've completely forgotten what the third question is. So why don't you just take those two? Yeah, you have to have proven COVID. You will have to have them to be able to access these drugs, but it doesn't have to be by PCR. It can be by rapid antigen test or rat test. Firstly, the um, pressure on the PCR testing system is a lot less now than it was a few weeks ago. So we're getting turnaround times more like 24 hours or less rather than four or five days. But secondly, rat tests in someone with symptoms in in the current epidemiological context, i.e. there's lots of COVID around, a positive rat test is pretty reliable indication that you have COVID. So if you've got a positive rat test or PCR, you can get treated, but your right time is of the essence. So it's really important if someone thinks they might be developing symptoms of COVID to get one of those two tests as soon as possible and and speak to their doctor so that if they might benefit from this, they can get it. So the the second question was about vaccination because the trials were all in unvaccinated people. Yeah, that's right. Um, So in fact, there's two really important caveats about the evidence. One is they were all in unvaccinated people. And secondly, they were all done prior to Omicron being, uh, you know, circulating. So the vaccination issue, the top line recommendations from the evidence task force for for these two medications and and also for citrovimab, which is the injectable antibody uh, for use in unvaccinated uh, people. However, there's also a consensus recommendation. It's something we can make that is slightly further away from the evidence, but based on expert consensus. Um, And that is that if people that are immunosuppressed these medications are indicated for people that are immunosuppressed regardless of vaccination status because they may not have responded to the vaccine. And secondly, people that are partially vaccinated, meaning they've had one or two doses and are overdue for their booster or their third dose, and they have a lot of risk factors, 
it's conditionally recommended to, to use in those people as well. Um, and as you point out, we don't know for certain how well it will work in, in those populations, but taking all things together, we've recommended it. The Omicron is the other uh, thing to think about. Again, we don't know how well these medications will work in Omicron. There's, there's lab data to suggest they probably will still work, but you, we don't know that for certain. With any new drug, Josh, there's contraindications when you shouldn't use it and it can inter- these, and any drug can interact with other drugs. So can you just take us through that so that people have an idea of, of the risks there, if any? Yeah, for sure. And that there are important um, considerations for both of these drugs. So for Paxlovid, because of the thing I mentioned with the ritonavir inhibiting the metabolism of the nematrovir, it also stops your liver breaking down a lot of other drugs or can induce your liver breaking down other drugs and therefore it can interact. So as an example, statins that are used as cholesterol-lowering agents um, and to decrease cardiovascular risk, they uh, most statins will interact with Paxlovid and, and shouldn't be used together. But also a lot of other drugs such as anti-epileptic medications and some antipsychotic medications, etc., can interact. So it's really important if your doctor is going to prescribe you one of these drugs to make sure that they've checked what your other medications are and that they're compatible with Paxlovid. And what about pregnancy? Yeah, and, and pregnancy is the other issue, particularly for molnupiravir. So molnupiravir in um, small animals, rodents and so on, is toxic to the embryo. So it can cause a death of the embryo or um, teratogenicity, meaning you know malformations. It's unclear if that's the case in humans, but you'd have to assume that it could be. So it's um, it's not for use in pregnancy and, in fact, shouldn't be used in um, women who are of childbearing age unless they're using reliable contraception and know that they're not pregnant. Paxlovid is also not recommended for use in pregnancy, but mainly just because there's a lack of data rather than that, that we know that it's bad. And your uh, evidence-based task force really pushes Paxlovid at the expense of monopiravir. Why did you do that? Really because the the evidence is a lot more convincing for Paxlovid than it is for molnupiravir. The effect size of the benefit of Paxlovid is a lot larger and was fairly consistent in the clinical trial that tested it. Whereas with molnupiravir, people may have heard about press releases of the interim data uh, recently. So, you know, halfway through the trial, they released data showing that molnupiravir had a, a large benefit on reducing hospital admission and mortality, about a 70% reduction. And then the final data, which was published in the New England Journal a couple of weeks ago, actually showed a much smaller reduction. And as it turns out, it's the, in the second half of the trial, there was hardly any benefit at all. And in the first half of the trial, there was a lot of benefit and that may well be because the Delta strain was the main circulating strain during the second half of the trial. So that just casts some doubt about the strength of effect of molnupiravir. There's just a lot of unknowns. So why approve it? Well, because there, there is still some signal of efficacy, firstly. Secondly, we don't know whether it will be effective or not in Omicron. Thirdly, it's uh, it's, an al- it's an alternative to Paxlovid in people who are on medications that will interact so that they can't take Paxlovid. Something we haven't mentioned before is um, kidney and liver impairment. It can be used in those patients, whereas Paxlovid can't. And finally, availability. You know, the, we don't know exactly how many doses of these are going to be available, and it's likely molnupiravir will be probably easier to buy on the global market than Paxlovid. 
So we know that the mortality rate of Omicron especially seems to be relatively low, at least in Australia, but people are still getting very sick. They're still dying from COVID. What difference do you see these drugs making to the numbers of deaths that we'll see, say, in a year's time? Firstly, it's the effect on hospital admission is is much larger than the effect on death, um, although the, there will be some decrease in the mortality rate. Secondly, because the mortality rate and hospitalisation rate from Omicron is so much lower than it is for previous strains, the effect of these drugs will be in a will be less in an absolute sense. So, to answer your question, I think they w- there will be a really useful added tool in our arsenal. They will decrease the hospital admission rate and mortality rate. To what extent is really unclear. Josh, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's Professor Josh Davis from the University of Newcastle, expert on infectious diseases and member of the National COVID-19 Clinical Evidence Task Force. And that's all for Chronicast for today. We will see you on Wednesday. Yep, we'll see you then. <laughs>